Hello, you're listening to Second City Sermons, a ministry of Second City Church in Midtown Harrisburg. This Eastertide, we are asking our Lord to teach us to pray. In the Gospel of Luke, Jesus' disciples asked him to teach them how to pray, and in response, he gave them what is both one of the most simple and yet complete prayers. In the Didache, one of the earliest documents of the church from the second century, it simply instructs Christians to pray the Lord's Prayer three times a day. Christians have devoted themselves to this prayer from our Lord ever since he first gave it, and we are going to ask him to teach us this spring through prayer. We'd love to meet you, and we hope you'll consider coming and joining with us each Sunday morning at 10 a.m. in the heart of Midtown Harrisburg. You can find us online at secondcitychurch.org and on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. We hope you enjoy this sermon. God bless. Lord, we're... We're thankful that you taught uh, this crowd in Matthew, on the, the Sermon on the Mount, uh, these holy words of uh, your prayer, that we're invited to call uh, the creator of all things our Father, and we are his children. That he desires his name to be hallowed, to be first set apart, distinct, worthy of all praise. God, our hearts long for your kingdom come, and your will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. And we're thankful that even in the petition of give us this day our daily bread, as we considered last week, there's not one thing in this earth that you do not invite us to lay before you, not one concern for our well-being, for our work, for the details of our lives. And now, Lord, even as we consider the idea of debts and debtors. Pray that you would enliven our hearts, that we would be very grateful that these are the words that you invite us to pray. Now may the words of my mouth and the meditations and the thoughts, desires, the imaginations, the contemplations of our hearts be pleasing to you, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, we are at the little petition in the Lord's Prayer, this series that we're doing this Easter tide from Easter to Pentecost. We're at the little uh, petition, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And today is, as has been mentioned, Mother's Day. Um, and that is a day, of course, that um, many of us celebrate with joy. And yet, I would guess actually that every single one of us also, because so many things are so mixed up like this, right? have really mixed emotions about a day like today. It's a day of tears, oftentimes tears for mothers that have passed away that you are no longer with. Um, tears for babies who died in the womb. Um, tears for families that are torn apart. And these two things can coexist together, right? We can be grateful and, and still sad and know the pain of life and the sorrow of this world that we live in, they're not mutually exclusive. Uh, gratitude and tears can flow together. And um, if you've been around here for a little while, you know that it's our habit and our custom here at Second City Church to order our life together, our calendar, our year around the life of Jesus and the gift of the Spirit and the life within the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And our world tells us, of course, that you're supposed to order your lives around like children's sports and civic holidays and just how much money you could possibly make, stuff like that. And that's not altogether bad per se, but we want to order our lives around Jesus. Um, and we want him to sort of keep our time for us. 
And so it hasn't really been our habit to really talk a lot about things like Mother's Day. And yet this week, I heard from one of my friends, it wasn't Hansu, it was somebody else on our retreat, that the history of Mother's Day was just so interesting. And so I was looking it up, and I want to tell you a little bit about it. Um, and I think there's a real good connection here to this petition in the Lord's Prayer. So Jed mentioned one of the women who was sort of involved a little bit in sort of bringing attention the idea of honoring mothers. But it really began largely right after the Civil War. Um, many of you know, of course, because this area was so involved in the, in the actions of the Civil War, Camp Curtin right up on 6th Avenue and Camp Hill being training places for the Union Army. But there were 620,000 people that died during the Civil War. 620,000. The fathers, the brothers, mothers, children left without parents. Many, many wives, mothers left to care for their children by themselves. And um, so in the aftermath of all that bloodshed, a woman named Ann Reeves Jarvis, who lived in West Virginia, started something that she called Mother's Day Work Clubs. And um, the whole intent was in this was to love and to see that she believed that others had an obligation to one another, to care for one another. And so they were training young mothers, and they were walking alongside them. And how do they do this? How do they do this sort of mothering in the context of having so many fathers particularly die at, during the war? They're coming alongside them, caring for other women and how they cared for their children who are now fatherless. And, um, 1868, she started what was called Mother's Friendship Day. And she saw that she actually believed that people had an obligation to seek reconciliation. And so Mother's Friendship Day was specifically a day when you would seek to get together with other mothers who lost children during the Civil War on the opposite side. So Union mothers would seek reconciliation with Confederate mothers. She believed that there was an obligation that she had to other people to pursue peace and wholeness and goodness. Um, now, Mother's Day is a national observance. That didn't happen for another 40 years, actually. Um, it wasn't until 1908 that Mother's Day was observed for the first time. And it was actually this woman, Ann Reeves Jarvis's daughter, Ann Jarvis, who organized the first Mother's Day celebration. Her own mother, Ann Reeves Jarvis, passed away in 1905, and she wanted to honor the sacrifice of her own mother and to honor the sacrifice of many mothers in the world. And um, she herself, this is actually pretty remarkable, the woman that start, started Mother's Day, she remained unmarried and without any children her entire life. She never had children herself, but she thought this was a, a beautiful thing to do, honor, honor people that gave their lives for children and other children. So... Um, she put together the first Mother's Day, uh, and then in 1914, actually after petitioning a great deal for this to become a national observance, Woodrow Wilson declared that it was to be honored on this day, the second Sunday uh, in May. Here's the really remarkable thing. So Ann Jarvis, the woman who pushed for this so much, um, by 1920, six, six years later, started crying out against it. She said, stop observing Mother's Day. And it wasn't because she remained without children or she remained unmarried, but she hated the commercialization of it all. I mean, quite literally, she would say, stop those cards, stop those flowers, stop those chocolates. 
She thought it was missing the point. Um, she was a pretty wealthy woman. And by 1948, when she passed away, she had almost no money to her name. Because at least what I read is that she had spent it all on legal fees, lobbying the government to give up on Mother's Day. Now, uh, whatever you think of that wild story, what I want you to hear is that the observance of this day of Mother's Day came out of a deep belief that we have an obligation towards others, that we owe others something. We owe to others their care in the midst of their sorrow with the passing of their spouse. We owe it to others to walk alongside them in their single parenting. And we owe it to others to seek reconciliation when war seems to be the order of the day. We owe it to others to seek wholeness in the midst of brokenness, to honor those who are placed over us, to care for those who are placed under us. She became dead set against that of the observance of that day because she believed that that obligation was actually being taken away. And what it was becoming is something kind of trite and superficial. But the responsibilities that we have towards others, the obligation that we have towards others is nothing remotely trite. It's weighty and it's heavy. It's true. Here's what I want you to hear. We owe others certain things. It may seem like a strange thing to kind of propose to you this morning. You owe others certain things. Uh, in the Presbyterian and Reformed traditions, uh, there's a great document called the Westminster Larger Catechism. And part of that document walks through the Ten Commandments. Probably many of you are familiar with the Ten Commandments. And I love how it does this because it's constantly asking, um, what does such and such commandment require of us? Which is to say, what are we obliged to from this commandment? How are we obliged from this commandment to live out our lives with others? So, uh, take the fifth commandment. Honor your father and mother. Well, out of that, it says, what's required of you is to honor all of your superiors, all those who God has placed over you in this life. Um, think parents, of course, but also, of course, bosses, police officers, and governors, and senators, and all the rest. And what it says is actually, from that very thing, there's something that's required of superiors to inferiors. We are obliged to those under us. Children or employees, civilians, whatever. It also actually has a question that is just says this. What's required? What is obliged of equals? How are you to, to owe another a certain way of engaging with them and being in this world with them? What I love is that this uh, larger catechism has as this basic premise that we owe others something. And it just goes on and on and on and on and lists these ways that we are obliged to one another, obligated. I think you are obligated, according to Holy Scripture, to rejoice with those who rejoice and to weep with those who weep. 
as part of what you're obligated to. We are obligated in Holy Scripture to one another to use our power, whatever it is, and you all have an aspect of power in your life. Not for our own gain, but for the blessing of others, particularly for the care of those who are in need, who are less fortunate. Um, we are obligated to one another to listen, to be slow to speak, eager to listen, to honor, uh, to pray for those who are over us. We owe one another certain things. Let me share with you an example of the larger catechism in this regard, okay? So, um, the sixth commandment, you shall, you shall not kill. This is how it answers that. What are the, this is the question it poses. What are the duties required in the sixth commandment? The answer is this. This is what it says. The duties required in the sixth commandment are all careful studies and lawful endeavors to preserve the life of ourselves and others. You may remember that that's part of why we took the approach that we took towards COVID. Um, was we believe that actually our own historical documents kind of say that we ought to pursue every endeavor to preserve others' lives. Um, to preserve the life of ourselves and others by resisting all thoughts and purposes, subduing all passions, and avoiding all occasions, temptations, and practices which tend to the unjust taking away the life of any. It's interesting. It just says which tend to that. There's a trend towards taking another's life. You ought to fight against it. By just defense thereof against violence, patient bearing of the hand of God, quietness of mind, cheerfulness of spirit, a sober use of meat, drink, physic, meaning the well-being of our body, sleep, labor, and recreations, by charitable thoughts, love, compassion, meekness, gentleness, kindness, peaceableness, mild and courteous speeches and behavior, forbearance, readiness to be reconciled, patient bearing and forgiving of injuries and requiting good for evil, comforting and succoring the distressed and protecting and defending the innocent. Did y'all, were y'all able to make it through that? That's <laughs> a, a long answer, isn't it? All of this from the simple question, what are the duties required in the sixth commandment? And my point to you is this, we owe one another certain things. Others, every single person you ever come into contact with is made in the very image of God. Every single person. And therefore, every single person you ever encounter is to be, in, to be treated with respect, with dignity, seeking their well-being. We've been given bodies by our Lord himself, uh, designed by him. And the Lord says, I've created you fearfully and wonderfully. And so we're to treat others' minds with care and compassion, their bodies with respect, having intrinsic worth, having intrinsic value. We owe others certain things. Um, you owe it to your boss to show up on time. And let me say this. I used to tell students doing REF this all the time. You show up on time and you wear the right clothes, you're going to do just fine. But you, you owe it to your boss to show up on time, wear the right clothes, and work. Just work. Fathers, 
Fathers, we owe it to our children to not use words or to not act in our bodies in such a way that provoke them to anger. We are obliged to them in this. They are made in the image of our Heavenly Father. Many of you are certainly aware, and I feel like I can't do a sermon right now on debt and debtors without mentioning that, that the U.S. has a little bit of debt. Uh, it seems to be one of the big headlines right now, the sort of what are we doing with all of our debt. The U.S. has $31.4 trillion of debt right now. Um, that's why the standoff is happening between, of course, uh, the president and Congress and all. $31.4 trillion. That is... Uh, Thirty three one four zero 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 zero. I thought I was I had to count that out. It's a lot of zeros. American household debt is at sixteen point nine trillion. Twelve trillion of that is mortgage debt. And we have a sense that that's a lot. And it's almost so much that it just seems too much that we have no clue. Like how what do you do with that many zeros? Um, but you just heard, as I read, just one question from the larger catechism. All the things that are required of us towards others. From just the sixth commandment alone. So how do you quantify how much you owe another? How do you quantify how little you've done? Put a money figure on that. Husbands and wives, you owe it to one another to give your hearts to one another. To know that your body is not your own. You are not one flesh. Your body belongs to your spouse. Children, you owe it to your parents to honor them, to respect them, but to obey them. They're who God has put over you. And here's what I want to suggest to you, that just as what we looked at last week when we pray, give us this day our daily bread. What we're actually asking for is all the things that are necessary in this life. Governance that promotes the well-being of farmers and farmers that can actually have land and water it and till it and all these things, jobs that we can show up to so that we might be able to buy bread. That that little phrase, that little petition encompasses this reality that God invites us to lay all of our lives before him. What we're saying in forgive us our debts is, Lord, in every single way we failed the things that we properly owe others. We're failing to properly give others what they are rightly due as part of your creation and part of your image bearers. Give us Please forgive us all of the wrongs that we have done. Which is to say, you do you is not a possible way for the Christian life. We are all bound together. You are not your own. You're not your own. You're never your own. You know this, your actions and your thoughts, and your imaginations, and your eating, and your drinking, all of it is bound up in the lives of others. Others that you've never seen. Others that are far off. Your life affects them. 
We owe one another a great deal. Of course, the other question that's invited from this passage, this little petition is, how much do we owe God? You've heard me say many times that sin is rebellion, and it's certainly that. From the, from the very beginning to today, from the garden until today, sin is saying, God, you don't know what you're talking about. Adam and Eve there say, man, this looks good. We should eat it. God be damned. We know. Sin isn't just rebellion. It's also just not giving God what he is owed. What he is properly, what we properly owe him. I mean, Adam and Eve there properly owed him complete obedience. He spoke and these things came into being. Could he not know what is right and wrong for us? Listen to this. I'm going to read you another question from Larger Catechism. I'm trying to get all my Presbyterianism in in one sermon, okay? Um, Question 104. What are the duties required in the first commandment? The duties required in the first commandment are the knowing and acknowledging of God, to be the only true God and our God, and to worship and glorify him accordingly by thinking, meditating, remembering, Highly esteeming, honoring, adoring, choosing, loving, desiring, fearing of him, believing him, trusting, hoping, delighting, rejoicing in him, being zealous for him, calling upon him, giving all praise and thanks and yielding all obedience and submission to him with the whole of man, being careful in all things to please him. And sorrowful when in anything he is offended and walking humbly with him. The very fact that God is God demands all of these things of us. We owe God these things for who he is. We owe him worship. We owe him our soul allegiance. We owe him our desires Our thoughts, our meditations, our praises, our thanks, our submission, our obedience, as he is. We are in debt. We're in debt over our heads. We're in debt over our heads to one another, and we're in debt over our heads to God. And what do we do with all this debt? Um, I'll tell you what. It's pretty easy to just demand that we get paid. You know know what I mean? Fathers, think with me on this, please. Isn't our inclination to just demand that we get paid? You can't talk to me like that. God says, honor me, kid. What are you doing? Give me what you owe me. Um, It's pretty easy uh, for us to engage maybe with a friend like this. I can't believe 
You would just dismiss my feelings like you did. You didn't weep with me when I was weeping. You didn't rejoice when I had success. Forget you. Pay me what you owe me or just die. Be gone with you. I think our natural inclination, when we think, what do other people owe us? Is say, pay up. Pay up. And Jesus invites us to pray, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Of course, there's a debate about this petition, right? Um, Is God forgiving us on the condition that we forgive others? Is it kind of a works righteousness thing that's going on here? Uh, After all, in Luke, or sorry, not in Luke, in Matthew here, after the prayer, we have this little two verses for if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you don't forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. A conditional thing? I think a better argument is not for this sort of conditional interpretation, but for what some people call a consequential interpretation. A consequential interpretation. God forgives us, and as an absolutely necessary consequence, we forgive others. The best way uh, to understand this is that an unforgiving Christian is by the very fact an unforgiven Christian. Just don't understand the debt that was forgiven you. No sense of the enormity of it all. Let me, um, let me end with a rather simple story that many of you know. Uh, in Luke chapter 15, Jesus tells a story, a really beautiful story. Jesus says there's a man that he had two sons. I have two sons. And the younger one came to him and said, Dad, I want you dead. I want you to die. Since you're still living, can you just act like you're dead? You're dead to me and give me the inheritance that I'm going to get? I want the money that's coming to me, and I want to go off and live without you. And so um, he takes the money, and he goes and uh, he squanders it, uh, living for himself and for the pleasures of this life. And he hits rock bottom, and this is, this is what Jesus says in the parable. He says, how many of, the, the, the young man says, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? But I perish here with hunger. I'll rise and go to my father. I'll say to him, father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. Now, I want you, I want you to think about this, right? Here is this man who's been told... Go die. There's been no honor that that child was called to give the father. Shame was brought upon the family. And yet what we read is that while while the son was still far off, while he's still at a far distance, the father starts to run towards him. And what he does is he embraces him and he kisses him. 
And today, you know, this, this is something that's sort of lost on us, I think, because today, um, you know, you've probably seen videos of President Biden riding his bike down in Delaware. Or, you know, you've seen President Trump uh, playing golf or President Obama shooting hoops. Um, and so you're like, well, you know, these guys are fit. I mean, that's kind of like an ideal that we have for these presidents or whatever. Um, that would have never been the case. The older you got in the, old, in, the, in the ancient world, the more sort of sedate you became, right? You wouldn't run around. It's for children to run around. Um, this would have been like completely killing all the gravitas of old age and the respect of old age. Picture it being like this. Many of you probably watched the coronation last Saturday. I know me and my children watched at least a lot of it. It would be like the Archbishop of Canterbury showing up in like jogging shorts. And like, oh, oh, you want to be crowned? Okay, I can do that. I, mean, I just came from the gym. Whatever. It's like, this is ridiculous. And what we have is Jesus saying, look at this man. Look at this father. He doesn't care about the shame. He doesn't really actually hold any of it against his son. I mean, he should have lambasted that kid. Do you know what you owe me? I am your father. You wanted me dead? And now you want to come back here and get some food? But he extends himself. And he welcomes him. And he embraces him and he kisses him. He takes upon himself the disgrace and the shame of the whole story. Because he longs for his child who is up to his ears in debt to know forgiveness and embrace and love and restoration, reconciliation. Here's the reality, right? Some of you, honestly, very possibly all of you in your life, will be harmed so incredibly and so deeply that the invitation and the demand of our Lord will feel impossible. It will feel almost cruel that the Lord tells you, you must forgive. You must forgive. Forgiving is not easy. But in that moment, I want you to look to Jesus I want you to look and see how hard it was for God himself to forgive your debts. I mean, the story of the Bible is that people throughout all time have been rejecting God, have not been giving him what he is owed. Certain times where it's especially bad, but there's not one person in the scriptures that is giving what God is owed. The whole world is up under the weight of debt. Not giving God what he is properly owed. And yet the story that is at the very heart of Christian faith is that Jesus willingly, not without difficulty, right? He says, not my will, but yours be done in the garden. 
but he willingly goes to the cross and he pays the debt of your sin. That is at the very heart of Christian faith, that all that you properly owed God that you did not give him, all that you properly owed another that you did not give them, which is at the heart of sin right there, Jesus says, I'm going to pay for it. Because I want you back in my family. You've been running far off, and I want to celebrate with you. I want to embrace you. I want you to be free again from the pigsty of this life and to know the joy of forgiveness. Freedom. New life. Liberation. Brothers and sisters, this, this little petition that our Lord Jesus gives us, Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. It encompasses this whole life of distance from God and distance from one another. And inviting us to pray it is God saying, I want it whole. I want you free. I want you liberated. I want you all reconciled with me and with one another. The Lord Jesus has paid the debt. I want you to ask him, forgive us, Lord. Give us our debts. And then he wants you to live it with one another. Let me pray for us. Lord in heaven, we know that forgiveness can be very overwhelmingly difficult. And it is only by the Spirit of God that much of our forgiveness in this life is remotely possible. If we didn't know through the Holy Spirit's work the reality that our debts are forgiven, there's no way we would move towards others. And so God, this morning, give us a sense of how much it cost you on the cross there to pay for our debts the things which we properly owed you and properly owe one another, our sins. Then God, let us please, like the pilgrim long ago in Pilgrim's Progress, lay that burden of debt at the cross and be free. Take the weight off our shoulders, Lord, Give us our debts. Take them as far as the east is from the west. Infinitely away from us. Help us to run towards you and run towards one another. In a life of freedom and joy and forgiveness and peace. That we in the world might know the forgiveness of debts and the new life of freedom. Praise in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to Second City Sermons podcast. We hope this sermon has encouraged you to worship God and to celebrate the gospel of Jesus. Please consider subscribing to this podcast and joining us in person each Sunday at 10 a.m. You can find us online at secondcitychurch.org and on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube. Thanks again for listening. God bless.